Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale. On this episode, we welcome Miriam Powell, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, editor, and biographer of Cesar Chavez and Jerry Brown, and one of my favorite writers on the topic of California. We had a really interesting conversation about those biographies and also the ways that California is a little bit inscrutable to folks outside the state and how her work seeks to interpret what's happening here and what has happened here for those who are perhaps outside the state looking at it from 3,000 miles away and saying, what the hell is that? I got news for you. If you're 3,000 miles away, if you're 300 miles away, we have the same questions inside California. What exactly is going on here? That's the whole purpose of this show. That's where that came from. What is California? It's not just a rhetorical question. We really are trying to get to the bottom of this. And that's what Miriam Powell's work focuses on. And that's what this conversation is also going to emphasize. And uh, before we get started, I just wanted to just do another kind of quick check-in with all of you. I hope you're doing well, and I hope that you did not uh, wash away with the rains we had over the last week. Um, that Sunday atmospheric river, how about that? Um, my garage flooded. I was out there with a... Sh- well, first I was out there with a mop, and um, that was hilarious. Uh, me in my sweats uh, with a mop trying to feverishly absorb, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 gallons of rainwater just kind of washing around the corner of the garage. That failed miserably. So I thought, oh, hey, I have a shop vac. I got that out. And even that filled up the bucket really quick. I thought, man, this isn't good at all. So, you know, it's a good problem to have though, I guess, you know, having a, a flooded garage. I thought, should I maybe save this water? Is this what I should be using to water the new plants out front that I I put in a couple weeks ago? Is this what I should be using to maybe bathe in? I don't know, maybe boil it, disinfect it, bleach it. I don't even know. I don't know. Anyway, these are the things that go through my mind when I am uh, shop vacuuming the water from the atmospheric river out of my garage. It wasn't really the end of the world. Nothing was damaged. Nothing was washed away. Uh, I was just, you know, kind of stricken with the drought era existential quandary of what to do with all this water. And my cat was prowling around anxiously wondering why I couldn't make the rain stop. That was really the hardest part of the whole thing. So we survived, made it. I hope you as well survived without too much Uh, distress. And um, I do hope we have the good fortune of these types of uh, events in the future. Maybe we can spread them out a little bit more. Uh, We don't need five and a half inches of rain all in one day. Maybe we can do, you know, two inches today, two inches tomorrow, another inch and a half the next day. There we go. That adds up to five and a half, right? I mean, can we try that? Just putting it out there in the world. All right. To anyone who can help, anyone's listening. Thank you. Anyway, today's guest is Miriam Powell. Miriam is the author of The Browns of California, The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, and The Union of Their Dreams. The latter two books are about the famed labor leader and the United Farm Workers. And then the former book is about the four generations of the Brown family, starting with August Shuckman uh, in the 19th century, moving to California and then his daughter, Ida Shuckman, and then um, Pat Brown, 
her son, who became, of course, the governor of California, and then Pat Brown's son, Jerry, whom we all know from episode one of What is California, not to mention his four terms as governor of California. Uh, that arc of the Brown family's experience in California, their influence on California, their successes, their failures, their challenges and their breakthroughs, their legacies and frustrations, all of it. Sometimes you hear the word magisterial thrown around about a biography or about a work of nonfiction. And I think Miriam Powell's book, The Browns of California, is one of those books you could probably describe as magisterial because of that 160 year arc that it covers and just the vision of California that it represents. There is no denying the impact that Pat and Jerry Brown had on the state of California. There is no denying the challenges that survived them. And there's no denying the sweep of 70 or 80 years of California history that their lives and administrations touched. And the way that Miriam tells their stories from the very beginning with August Shuckman arriving in Calusa, his daughter Ida wanting to get out, Edmund G. Pat Brown, who did you know he got his nickname from when he said, give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry's famous line when he was a student in a school play when he was a kid. And uh, all his friends called him Pat after that, and the name stuck. And that's how we know Pat Brown. We get to see his path through San Francisco politics up to the state level when he became governor. We then get to see Jerry's transition from a seminarian in his teens, early 20s, to the political animal that he became. You know, and all the stories that you're familiar with are mentioned. Things like, you know, Jerry having an apartment furnished only with a mattress and his Spartan lifestyle in Sacramento when he was the Secretary of State and then eventually the governor. You know, his relationship with Linda Ronstadt, among others. But fundamentally, it focuses on his grand vision for California and what it cost him as a leader because he also obviously had grand visions beyond California. And that tension between the local and the national, the state and the federal, all of these different tensions and contradictions and conflicts receive really thorough focus and attention in Miriam's book. And I just think it's a fascinating read. I think it's entertaining. I, I love Jerry's voice. You know, she talked to Jerry for the book multiple times. And uh, his insights and reflections, I think, along with Miriam's exhaustive reporting and exhaustive research combine for a story that we haven't seen or read before. And it really is, to me, the story of California. It is the story that when I read it, I realized, wow, this could be a whole podcast. Like, there's so much in here. And that's kind of the cornerstone of what is California. This book, The Browns of California, was kind of a North Star for me getting started on this podcast. And it remains that as I proceed. All of the stories, all of the interests, all of the imperatives, everything that California means is represented or accounted for in that book. And it is such a thrill and a true privilege to have Miriam on to talk about those dynamics and those elements and California, a place we both love, uh, a place I'm from and she's a transplant to, but where we both call home and whose future preoccupies us in ways that I think we're still figuring out. And that's kind of the beauty of being a Californian. So uh, remember, you can find me on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. You can subscribe to the newsletter 
at whatiscalifornia.substack.com and drop me a line sometime. I'd love to hear from you. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. If you want to go into the archives and check out the premiere episode of What Is California featuring a conversation with former Governor Jerry Brown, that was pretty good. Uh, you can go back and have a listen to that after you listen to Miriam or before. Either one, it works either way, but that's a good episode you might uh, be interested in listening to uh, as a kind of a companion to this one. So without further ado, here is me with Miriam Powell on What is California? Enjoy. Miriam Powell, welcome to What is California? So glad to have you here. I'm a big fan of your California histories and uh, of the Brown family and Cesar Chavez and the labor movement. But before we get to those, what is your California story? Are you from here originally? Um, like so many people in California, I am not from here. I am an immigrant to California. I am from New York. Um, I spent really much of my life in New York, thought of myself as a New Yorker. I think that's an important part of my um, my my background for people to understand because I always say that I can talk about California. Part of what I think is important about my work is that I try to translate California for people who do not live here and particularly people on the East Coast. And I always say that I understand what they think of California because I was one of them. So I had a very stereotypically East Coast, New York view of California before I moved here. Um, I was a journalist for the first half of my career or maybe a little bit more for 25 years. And I worked in newspapers in New York and then came to Los Angeles uh, in 2000 to work at the LA Times. And that was what brought me to California. And I certainly was not someone who ever imagined myself in Southern California and also someone who um, immediately loved it when I got here and really embraced it and found it to be, uh, you know, just an utterly fascinating place. And over time, as I explored the whole state um, felt that way about California, you know, as a whole, and really began to write about California um, because I found it such a fascinating place and in many ways uh, a misunderstood one and, and such a complicated um, place. So so I am a transplant, but I have lived here for 20 years. Um, I, As I said, I was in journalism for 25 years and then left the LA Times in 2006 and since then in order to write books, and since then have been writing primarily books and um, op-eds and opinion pieces, largely for the New York Times and sometimes the LA Times as well. What were some of the things that you found most fascinating about California when you arrived here? Well, I mean, Los Angeles in particular, moving here from New York, I think that Los Angeles is you know one of the only places I could imagine moving that was as equally big and exciting a city as New York, but in very different ways. You know, in terms of its geography, obviously, in terms of its diversity, in terms of the way it was segregated more by class than by race, in terms of what race meant in California, um, in terms of the enormous diversity of ethnic and racial backgrounds of people here. That made it have just a completely different feel than the New York City, for example. And then the the sheer physical beauty of the state, I think that's also something that people who grow up here often take for granted in some ways. There were a number of us who moved from New York at the same time to work at the LA Times, and we all were so struck by the physical characteristics of, of California and how 
how much that shapes life here also. And I think that's something that I was struck by when I first moved here and that has continued to sort of really influence my work is the way in which Californians' relationship to the natural world is very different than in a lot of other parts of the country. And that just colors, you know, everything from the economy to lifestyle. So, you know, in, 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 in the East Coast and in other places, people make jokes about California, or at least they used to prior to climate change, about the weather and how, you know, how boring the weather is and how beautiful it is and, and so forth and how people move here for the weather. And I think that that, like many caricatures, there's an element of truth there, but it, it masks the reality of how much the climate and the natural world more generally influence how people live here. And so that was very striking to me right away. You know, California is like a country. It's so large and there's so many different Californians. And, you know, we'll get to this later, but as I began to write about farm workers, for example, you know, that brought me into parts of California that are not what people stereotypically think of when they think of California. So understanding all of those issues I found fascinating, understanding the, understanding the differences between Southern and Northern California, between the coast and inland, how all of those issues play out. The other thing I would say that I was very striking to me early on and has continued to influence me, I think, is that people here identify as Californians in a way that is different at least in my experience, from other parts of the country. So people don't identify as New Yorkers if they live anywhere in New York State. They, If you say you're a New Yorker, it means you're from New York City, right? And there isn't really much sense of identity with New York as a state. I find that's very different here. People you know, obviously have different regional perspectives and identities, but that sense of being a Californian is is an important piece of it. I feel like Texas is really the only other state that has something like that. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. Had you been to California before you moved here? I'd been to Los Angeles a few times. I had been to San Francisco. I had been on some trips. I was a judge in the Hearst Journalism Contest, and they would take us on trips to different parts of California that were important to the Hearst. So I was up way north in Shasta and Wintoon. That was probably the most memorable place that I saw in California, which is sort of not typical of anything necessarily. So I had a kind of a scattered sense of the state, certainly a sense of the beauty in some places, you know, in terms of the coast. I don't really have a good early memories. I really had not much sense of California when I came. What about California's people or culture has impacted you or influenced you and who you are? Learning about even things like, you know, the Japanese internment, which is not something that, I mean, I, I hope that that is now studied in in schools outside of California. But I know that, you know, in my AP history course, I don't think we learned anything about the Japanese internment in New York. Um, it's a very much a West Coast story because of the way it unfolded, the history of the missions. I, I guess for me, the way in which and, and this, you know, is, is what influenced my work so much is the way in which the history of California relatively recent history, right? Because California is a lot younger than than some other parts of the country in some ways. Although if you go back to the Native Americans, that's obviously not true. So all the ways in which those layers have built upon one another, the missions, the controversies over the missions in Nerepero Sierra and so on, um, I feel like all, that, that's very alive in some ways. I think a lot of students in California don't even know the history, at least the full range of the history, at least the history that's you know, revealed in, in books like yours. When I started to write about Cesar Chavez, 
the, the the degree to which people had no idea who he was. It was like he was a name on a street sign and he was a school. The holiday. The holiday, right. That's a lot of what motivated me to write about him, too. When did you choose and why did you choose to pivot to books and histories about California? Right. So I came to the LA Times as an editor um, and I was a California editor. And so was learning about the state, but from, you know, and trying to go out as much as I could, but learning from the point of view of being an editor and really wanted to understand more about it. And so switched to reporting, became a reporter, sort of a project reporter. And in figuring out, because I'm a big believer in beat reporting and it's sort of carving out something in which you're, you have expertise, um, I kind of discovered agriculture and fell into that as a subject that seemed to me to be something nobody was really writing about. And to the extent it was covered, it was covered as a business story and not as this story that combined public policy and people and history and the present. And, you know, to me, it had so many rich elements. And so I began to write about agricultural issues. And through that, got interested in the United Farm Workers and in their role or lack of presence really today in the fields. And as a baby boomer who grew up sort of, you know, as a kid boycotting grapes and thinking that the UFW was this kind of labor organization that had solved all of the problems in the fields, as I found out that that was not true and that they had evolved into something different, got very interested in that and ended up spending my last year at the LA Times doing a four-part series about the UFW. It was largely about what it had become and what conditions were like, but as part of that, um, thinking that I was going to just put the present in context, I went and began to talk to people who had been involved in the heyday of the union back in the 70s and found their story so fascinating and compelling and so directly related to the present that one piece of the series ended up being a story about what happened between 1977 and 1981, which is very unusual for a newspaper. And so so that, that was the pivot for me, both from journalism to history to where I now identify myself more in some ways as a historian and as a journalist, um, got me completely hooked on archives, on going back and spending time in with primary source documents and, and figuring out the past, and also obviously sparked my sort of long-term interest in farm workers in the UFW and ultimately in Cesar Chavez. So that's what I left the paper after writing that series pretty much in 2006 and began to do my first book, which was kind of a a history of the rise and fall of the union. That was what what pivoted me into into a whole second career. That was the book, The Union of Their Dreams, right? Yes, that was The Union of Their Dreams, which is a story of of the farm worker movement told not through Cesar Chavez, who's obviously in the book, but through eight different characters who were drawn together into this world. And and it's their individual stories. And, and sort of through them, you see the, the rise and fall of the union. In that book, Cesar Chavez is sort of on stage, but not center stage. And when I finished that, I didn't really intend to write more about him or farm workers. But, you know, this gets back to the issue of the history and what's known and what's not known about it. There had been no biography of him written. He died in 1993. And really, people knew very little about him. And he'd become a kind of a 
very one-dimensional saint-like figure. And because I had done all of this earlier work, I kind of knew a lot about him, obviously, but had not focused primarily on him and became convinced that there was a really important book to be written about him because he is both a very heroic figure, an important figure, and a significant one in, in many different aspects. So that led me to ultimately write the biography of Chavez. A recurring theme in both of these books is the uneasy and uniquely Californian relationship between ambition and disillusion. It's the kind of thing we usually see in maybe like a Joan Didion essay. It's very clear in the story of Chavez and UFW because the California dream is about possibility and so much was supposed to be possible in UFW. But Chavez was such a flawed leader. He was like the right politician for the moment, but maybe not the right person for the movement. Does that seem fair or is that just like a distinction without a difference? Well, I would disagree. I mean, I think he was the right person for the movement. There are many leaders throughout history and many books have been written about the fact that people who build movements and create them and are successful at building really important movements are not necessarily the best people to run them. But, you know, almost inevitably don't want to give up control of that movement to someone else. And so that, I think, is the situation in him. So he is a flawed leader. But, you know, to me, he's he's a hero and he's a very much American hero. He accomplished amazing things and it was remarkable. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what drew me to that story was this sense of incredible sort of excitement and energy and opportunity that existed during that movement. And that really transformed life for a generation, both a generation in the field and a generation of organizers and students and people who got drawn into the movement and made it the success that it was in those years. And the tragedy is that it didn't have a lasting impact in the fields, but he has a real legacy outside of the fields also in the ways in which he changed life for a whole generation of people who went on and used those skills and learned how to organize and went into teaching and into the environmental advocacy and into all sorts of other fields. So I do think that that sense of opportunity and, and optimism that is sort of very Californian, th- that he's a piece of that. I would recommend all of your books to listeners, but really your biography of the Brown family, it's called The Browns of California, is uh, an extraordinary otherworldly history of California that traces four generations from the gold rush to about 2018, the end of Jerry Brown's final term as governor. And that arc... Uh, 170 years, tells us so much about aspiration and ambition and limitation in California. So what prompted you to take on the Browns as a subject after Cesar Chavez and UFW? Yeah, so I had written some about Jerry Brown because he was a very instrumental person in some of the successes of Cesar Chavez and the farm worker movement in the 70s when he was governor the first time around. Um, I had not ever met him, but I when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I wanted to write something. I wanted to continue to write about the history of California in some way. He was inaugurated for his final fourth term. He gave a state of state address where he talked about his great grandfather, August Shuckman, who had come across the plains in 1852 and settled in Calusa on this land where Jerry Brown was planning to retire to and has in fact since retired. And 
was just very struck by, and he was then spending weekends up there. There was, it was completely off the grid. There was no electricity. There was no running water. And so here you have the governor of California who could spend his time anywhere in California that he wants, right? And who is going to this very unlikely place of Calusa, which is about an hour north of Sacramento. It's a very rural area. And it'll be interesting to understand what drew him to Calusa. And so I ended up going there and having a long conversation with him at the ranch, which then had just a few barns on it. And in listening to him talk about his ancestors, beginning with his great-grandfather, but also listening to him talk about his father and thinking about all of those generations, it just became really clear to me that this was a vehicle to tell a story about California and about a really remarkable family. You know, because as you said, it, they trace, you know, almost that California was admitted to the Union in 1850. And so the arc of the family traces really, you know, the, the, the time that California was in the state. And, and Jerry Brown is a rather remarkable politician of someone who came back and was governor twice with this long pause in between and so forth. So there were great characters and his great grandfather and his grandmother are also really interesting figures. So it was just was a great opportunity for me to learn a lot about California also and a lot about Northern California because they're primarily a Northern California family and to really sort of try to tell a story that, that, that said something about California history and also talked about the, some of the aspects of California that make it unique, right? And we've talked about the environment a little bit. I would also just throw out, you know, higher education and the system of higher ed and public higher ed in California, which is another thing that shaped the state and which Jerry's father, Pat Brown, was also very instrumental in, in creating. So it was just a fascinating window. Yeah, totally, totally fascinating, totally exhilarating to read that and to understand that long arc. And there's a lot, however, that's bittersweet about Jerry Brown's life and career, particularly that, and maybe I'm the only one who feels this way, but he's the end of the line. You know, there was Pat, there was Jerry, Jerry's sister, Kathleen, gave it her best shot. Um, you know, Jerry's wife, Anne, is not interested in elected office. Anne would be a great person to run for office, but yes, I do not think that's going to happen. Yeah, I profiled her for a magazine a few years ago, and I asked her point blank, so, you know, what do you think? And then she said, she laughed, basically. <laughs> she laughed at my face. So uh, that settled that. And that was a little bit bittersweet. I, I can't lie, you know, um, they don't have kids. And I know that the idea of a political dynasty can kind of sound patriarchal or old fashioned, but the Browns just seemed different. You know, they were optimists. They were pragmatists. They were dreamers, um, pragmatic dreamers, if that can be a thing. Is it just me who kind of wishes the Brown family were still around? Do you sense that too? No, I think they're, I think it's certainly not you and not only you. And I know that when I did, I mean, I was very fortunate the book came out before COVID. So I was able to do live events around the state, which are just really wonderful opportunities to interact with people. And there were always people there who expressed sentiments similar to yours. And I do think that that sense of optimism is something, you know, I didn't really think about this when I wrote the book, but people's response to it was very much 
you know, particularly in difficult times, that it gave them some hope that it was inspiring to read these stories because it made people feel good about California and about various things, even though, you know, obviously it's a mixed uh, bag and a mixed trajectory. But, uh, you know, Jerry Brown and Pat Brown are very, very different in lots of ways, completely different in their character and their intellectual interests and so forth. But I think the one thing that they share is that they're just completely Californians and their sort of devotion to the state and commitment to it and belief in it in their different ways. They really, you know, that just manifested itself in everything that they did. And, you know, for Jerry Brown, it was not a physical legacy the way his father had the water, um, the state water project and the universities and roads and so forth, which was a very, a very different time. He, Pat Brown was the perfect governor for the 1950s, of which was this era of expansion where California was exploding and there were a thousand people moving here a day. And, and, and Pat Brown was the perfect governor for that, that time. And Jerry, obviously very different. And somebody who talked about limits back in the 1970s, I mean, in many of the same ways that, that the echoes of things that are, are coming up today, but who has certain through lines in terms of his commitment to the environment and really um, pushing on issues like climate change and so forth. And he was able to really I think just restore people's confidence that government could do things, could be effective. I think one of the best illustrations of this was that in 2012, he was able to push through a tax increase at a time when people were very dubious that that would succeed. But by framing it as something that was a commitment to education and that that money was going to go to lower and higher education, that that kind of a shared sacrifice was important. Um, he kind of just... Um, uh, restored people's confidence that government could be a force for good, really, basically. And I think that's also something that he and his father shared, is just a belief. And they saw government's role very differently in some ways, but they share that idea that government um, could be a force for good of the people and the public at large. Proposition 30 isn't really going to be a legacy, though, right? I mean, that's not going to be something no. that... I mean, I when I think of any sort of like state ballot measures that kind of follow Jerry's career. I think of Prop 13. I think of Proposition 13, which- He owns that. That's It's true. Yeah. And and, and Prop 13 enshrined kind of um, a freeze on property taxes. It, it, it really limited the amount of revenue that the state could derive from property taxes. And it was a seismic shift in California policy and California uh, economics. And Absolutely. that is something that I think Jerry Brown will always have to own and that is as much a part of his legacy as anything else. Do you think that's unfair or? No, I think that's accurate. I think that um, he had a very bad relationship with the legislature at that point. He had run for president once, was about to run for president again. He wasn't really focused on Sacramento in the way that he certainly was the second time around. And Proposition 13 has just, I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to overstate its importance in shaping California ever since then, right? Because not only did it change all the, the sort of the financing of so many things, but it also, you know, affected things like land use because local governments can't raise property taxes. They can, they're, you know, one of the few ways they can get more, more revenue is from retail. And so you have, you know, a, a shift towards 
local governments encouraging more retail development because that is a, a cash benefit for them. And, and I mean, that's just one little way and it, its tentacles are so large. So, you know, absolutely. That's a huge part of the legacy. I guess Jerry's vision for high-speed rail too. That was something he, I think, envisioned as a as a legacy down the line, but um, it's mothballed. <laughs> uh, he's got these, you know, ghostly concrete pillars out there in the Central Valley, even if construction started back up like right now, that's still at least 12 to 15 years away, well after Jerry Brown will be gone. It seems kind of tragic, doesn't it? I, that part doesn't seem tragic to me if it ever happens, because I think that one of the things that distinguishes him from most politicians, virtually all of them, is that he's always had a much longer um, time horizon and, and governed that way. And so you know, whereas most elected officials are thinking about their next election, pretty much, or with term limits about their next job, often, um, I think he always was pretty farsighted in, in in terms of what he was doing. I mean, even back in the 70s, you know, a lot of the things that people made fun of him for then and the whole Governor Moonbeam idea and so forth, um, you know, he was he was interested in space colonies at the time, which were a real thing, and I guess you know which we're seeing again today. So a lot of um, I, I don't think that he ever, you know, even necessarily expected to see the high speed train, even if things had gone more smoothly than they obviously have. You recently wrote in the New York Times about the limitations that California faces: the limitations of drought and fire kind of colliding with the limitations of housing and income inequality and just imagination maybe. And we'll put that article in the show notes for folks to read, but what sparked or prompted that piece from you in the first place? Yeah, so I have been talking to my editor at the New York Times about this idea for since before the pandemic. So, you know, probably for the last two years because it just became sort of increasingly clear that that this the California really needed to figure out how to deal with limits. Again, something that Jerry Brown talked about a lot, particularly his first in the 70s, um, it's not something that most politicians ever want to talk about, right? I mean, most of us don't want to really face limits, but particularly elected leaders don't like to be in the position of telling people that they can't have everything or that they have to make hard decisions. So, you know, a lot of those decisions have been deferred and put off. And only now is California, for example, beginning to deal with the fact that it has never regulated the, the groundwater depletion in any way. It's never even measured the amount of water that people take out of the ground. And so you have these situations in the Central Valley where the land is literally sinking by many feet. I, I think it's a good example, both of Jerry Brown as governor and also of the, the opportunity to turn crises into opportunities, that in the last drought in 2014, the state finally passed a really important law that um, will force both the regulation of groundwater in the Central Valley and also force um, limitations on, on, on in order to restore some of the natural, uh, the water table and the estuaries and so on. That again was going on pre-pandemic. Those are really hard choices that are going to result in following, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of prime agricultural land. But those decisions, you know, have to be made if you want to preserve a future for agriculture at all. And if you want to have a future for people who live in the valley and have groundwater to to drink and and for homes. I mean, I guess that the overarching issue 
that I think is driving that and that is one of the central problems facing California is the enormous degree of income inequality that we have in the state. And obviously that's a problem nationally, but like so many things, it's, you know, everything in California is bigger because we are bigger. Um, and, and I think that that, that issue of having the highest poverty rate and the most billionaires and, and that just incredible discrepancy, which the pandemic has really brought into focus even more sharply, right? Because we're in this situation of enormous unemployment, and yet the state budget is overflowing with billions of dollars in surplus because so much of the state revenue comes from the top 0.05% and from capital gains, and those people have done so well. That gap is just driving you know, so many of the problems um, the housing situation, which is really critical, the home, you know, all, you know, when you can, you can sort of trace almost all of the issues that are, that are affecting California and that I think are driving the need for limits back to that fundamental inequality and the, the lack of efforts to really, to bridge that. So amid everything, drought, wildfires, pandemic, climate change, homelessness, housing, you would say that economic inequality is perhaps the biggest challenge that California faces that kind of touches all of those things. Yes, I would say that, I think, um, because it's also something that that's going to require fundamental shifts in the structure of life in California for a lot of people. Right? Um, and and that's that's very hard to deal with. I mean, I think if, you know, probably the best illustration of how hard that is, is the fact that changes in housing all of the, all everybody knows that there, we need more affordable housing and it sort of becomes increasingly difficult to do that. Climate change can't be underestimated in terms of its impact on everything in California also. And again, that's going to force so many changes. The, you know, there are, there are cities right now in the Bay Area planning for how to really give back land because the tides are going to rise. And, um, you know, so there are there are places that are trying to to anticipate it, but it seems like it's happening much faster even than people anticipated, and it's going to be very hard to catch up with that. What do you think people outside California most misunderstand about our state? Okay, so there's a. <laughs> I've thought about that question a lot, and I've tried to write about it. Um, one thing, starting with the very most basic thing, is I don't think people understand how large California is. So I always try to remind people that, you know, Los Angeles County alone has more people living in it than all but 10 or 11 states. So, you know, the scale of things here is just is just huge. And I don't think people really understand that. I don't even think sometimes people who live in California understand that kind of how big everything is. And you know, that has some, that's had some real major advantages for California, too, in the sense that when California does something, be that changing, you know, the standards for emissions on cars, it has national impact because of the size of California. So California, in many ways, has used that size and power um, to, to, to good, to what I would consider a, a public good. But, but I just don't think that people get how big the place is. And, and and how different it is and how diverse it is. And, 
you know, it's, I mean, people think of Hollywood or they think of, um, you know, Beverly Hills, or they think of San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, there are certain things that people have in their mind. Um, and, and all those things are true, and they are all parts of California. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's such a more complicated place than that. I think that California tends to get portrayed in the national media, particularly and therefore in the popular mind, as one of these two extremes. Either it's apocalyptic, it's just the state is on fire, it's going bankrupt, it's going to hell, everybody's leaving, it's just a horrible place. Or it's some idyllic, wonderful, beautiful place and in the in the sort of in some of the early the, the the last brown years when brown was a sort of counterweight to Donald Trump it was like you people live in a place that protects immigrants and protects cares about the environment and you have Jerry Brown and isn't that wonderful and um you know and neither of those two extremes is is really accurate right it's always hard to comp to capture that complexity we end with the same question for all guests who is your favorite californian past or present and why this is so hard. Do I have to pick one? Uh, give me as many as you'd like. Okay. I'm not going to, I'm staying away from living Californians because that gets complicated. But Ida Shuckman Brown, who was the mother of Pat Brown, the grandmother of Jerry Brown, to me, um, fascinating figure. And for lots of reasons, she was born in Calusa. She was the um, youngest child of her her German immigrant parents, um, the only one who left Calusa, everyone else stayed there. There still are a lot of relatives there. When she was 18, she was born. Oh, shit. I got to think about this. Sorry. I should have looked this up. You can look it up. She was, she was born in 1870. Oh, wait. I could do this more easily. I should note for listeners, Miriam has just pulled her own book off her bookshelf to reference. <laughs> it's so cool that you can do that, Miriam. I love that. Okay, 1878. I thought that was right, but I didn't want to say it. I don't want to be wrong. So Ida Shuckman was born in 1878 in this rural area of Calusa. She was the youngest child of her German immigrant parents. Uh, all of her older siblings stayed in that general area, but when she was 18, she was just bored out of her mind. She was an extremely intelligent woman. She left and went to San Francisco and stayed with friends and never went back. And so, you know, right there you have this sort of incredible independence that she had in this fierce spirit, which I think of as being also very Californian characteristics. And she gets to this turn of the century San Francisco, which was the Paris of the West, and becomes this self-educated autodidact, goes to lectures by Mark Twain and reads everything she can in the library um, and raises her son, Pat Brown, uh, in this world of San Francisco. Um, and lives to see one her son become governor. Her grandson win the Democratic primary in 1974. She died just before he was elected governor um, in 1974. And lived by herself in a little apartment off Golden Gate Park uh, until the last year of her life. And she was, to me, sort of a, a classic Californian. She's the matriarch of this family that had enormous influence in shaping this state and been very close to her, all of her grandchildren, 
an important influence on Jerry Brown, an important part of why he chose to go back to Calusa and build his retirement home there, where he talks about being able to walk in the footsteps of his grandmother and sort of create his last act as he is in his 80s and returning there. And so, so I find her to be, in a lot of ways, a really quintessential Californian figure. Miriam Powell, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a true pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been great fun. And that is the show. Thank you very much to Miriam Powell for appearing on this week's episode. I love that conversation. Her books, once again, are The Browns of California, The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, and The Union of Their Dreams. All three are available wherever you get books. And you can also read Miriam's columns, her op-eds, at the New York Times. There's links to all of this in the show notes, and I hope you'll take a look. What is California is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. And on Substack, we have a newsletter, free, comes out every Thursday with new episodes, every Friday with weekend reads, and that is at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Again, that is free to subscribe. You can support What Is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. If you want to chip in a few shekels to help us keep the cloud servers running and the headquarters cat fed, you can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked What is California, I would love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That is a wrap for Episode 8. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. See you next time. And until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear. Bear.